Hi there. We're in a brief series leading up to Christmas in which we're looking at the theme of wonder in the Christmas stories. And it's great just looking at that word and seeing how it emerges in the Christmas story in a number of different ways. And the thing I like about the word as we've been going through this short series is that the word wonder has some kind of overlapping but quite different meanings, doesn't it? So when you say that something is a wonder, as in use the word as a noun, to refer to a wonder, isn't that a wonder? What it means is something very unusual or amazing or startling or impressive. So if we say the seven wonders of the world, we mean seven hugely impressive and amazing things. Whereas if you use the word wonder as a verb, as a doing word, you mean something really quite different. Because to say, I wonder, is not to say, I am amazingly impressive and unusual, although I might think that, but that's not what it means to say, I wonder. To say, I wonder, means I am questioning, or deliberating, or pondering, searching, investigating. And so those two senses of the word are really quite different. And then we use it as an adjective or an adverb as well, which is that we can say something is wonderful, or something has been done wonderfully, at which point we normally mean this is excellent and worthy of praise. It's something that I think I want to speak really well of. So if I say so-and-so put in a wonderful performance in the show or the match, I'm saying that what they did is praiseworthy. It's worth other people noticing and saying that was really good and speaking well of it. So we can use the word wonder in three really quite different ways. We can use the word wonder to refer to a surprising phenomenon, something really amazing or unusual, or something that raises a question or makes us ponder and search for answers, or something that is worthy of adoration and praise. And of course, in the Christmas story, we find all three of those meanings of the word wonder coming together in the person of Jesus. So Mary has an encounter with the angel, which is really a wonder in the first sense. It is like a wonder of the world, a surprising, extraordinary event that makes people go, wow, that's really unusual, and it makes me want to stop and take notes. And she responds to that with faith and obedience, as we've seen. And then the shepherds, if you like, prompt people to wonder in the second sense, like as a verb. All who heard the story wondered at what the shepherds had told them, particularly they wonder about the identity of this child, this statement that this is born to you a saviour who is Christ the Lord. So there is a wonder, but then the shepherds wonder in the sense of pondering, deliberating. And then in the story we're going to read now from Matthew chapter 2, we meet a group of people who move through all three stages. That is, they encounter something very unusual, a startling phenomenon, And that leads them to search and to ask questions and ponder and wrestle and deliberate and investigate. And that then leads them to a place of regarding something, or in fact someone, as worthy of adoration and praise and worship. They go from encountering a wonder to wondering to encountering Jesus as wonderful and bringing worship and tribute to him. And so that is something that at this point in the story, Mary and the shepherds have not done. They have not yet come to the place of worship. But the individuals we're going to meet now, they have and they do. So let's read from Matthew chapter 2 and beginning at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come 
to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they'd seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of God. I want to start by clearing up a few things about these guys. They're known as the wise men or the whatever, the we three kings. And my suspicion is that many of the things that we know about them are wrong. Almost, almost everything that we know about them, at least if you go and watch children's nativities, and my kids are in nativities like many of us are, but you go and watch nativity, almost everything you find out about these guys is wrong. So at least according to the text that we have, and this is the one text in Scripture that refers to these individuals, we are not told that they are kings. Right? It doesn't particularly matter that they're not kings, but generally they wear crowns in a kid's nativity, and there's no reference at all to them here being kings. I don't think it matters, although John Calvin, who's a better theologian than me, I love this comment he made about them. He said, beyond all doubt, those people who believe that they are kings have been stupefied by the righteous judgment of God that all might laugh at their gross ignorance. So that's obviously what John Calvin thinks about those of us who put crowns on our kids' heads, including me. But it doesn't really matter that they're not kings, but it, says, it doesn't say they're kings. We also, really, they're not wise men either, or at least not in the sense that we would use that word today. Right? So we might refer to them as the wise men. In fact, the translation we've just used does. But the word magos was originally a, a Persian priest or an astrologer or a dream interpreter and expert in the occult. That's what that word originally was. And then Babylonian examples are found as well. So when we say a wise man or wise woman, we tend to imply a person who is very knowledgeable, a sage, a, a very bright person. That's not really what the word went there. It kind of had a hint of that, but really was more about them being dream interpreters and magicians, in a sense. And, our, you know, you know the word magi, if you know that word, or the mag- magos is the word here in the, in the original language. But you, that, that's where we get the word magic. So these guys are, in that sense, like forerunners of magicians, rather than wise men in the sense of being, oh, very intelligent people. We're also not told that there are three of them. Now, I don't know, they, well, I do know, I can kind of guess where that comes from, I think, but it comes from the fact that there are three gifts, but it doesn't say that at all. There might have been 50 of them. There might have been two of them. We just don't know. We have no idea whether they rode on camels, although no doubt in almost every presentation they sort of come in like this. And you think, who would ride a thousand miles 
across desert on a camel. Um, it's just an unthinkably uncomfortable experience. We're even not told that they followed a star. That's not what the text says. Rather, they simply say, we saw his star when it rose. And we've come to worship. And that's an extraordinary comment because that makes it sound like maybe what they've observed is an astrological phenomenon rather than following a star. I mean, if you think about it, how do you even follow a star? How does that work? What do you do? Like, you know, because the star is not moving away. They're billions of miles away. Like, how on earth would you even follow one? Is it, is if it moves that way, do you sort of go, I think we're supposed to go this way and then it goes back again? I mean, it's just not clear how you would even do that. I think it might be a little bit more like those of us who were up early a couple of weeks ago on a Tuesday morning may have seen it, that there was this, it was in the papers, just a spectacular moment where the moon is sort of bright and in crescent, and then the morning star, which on this occasion was Venus, is sort of sitting like as if the moon is like a hammock pointing up towards this star. It's an incredibly beautiful vision in the morning. And I was on my commute, and I looked at it, and wow, a lot of people were reading. It might have been that kind of thing where the stars align in such a way as to point you somewhere, but it almost certainly wasn't like the star is just traveling through space until it lands directly above somewhere, and the wise men saw it when it rose, and for all we know, they then don't see it again until they finish meeting Herod, and then they see it again, and they rejoice with great joy. So there's a lot of things about this story that, by the way we tell it or get our kids to perform it at Christmas, probably a little bit wrong. They would, the wise men are also not present at the birth of Jesus. Right? We know that because the text even says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And then, of course, they had to get from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. So that, I'm afraid if that spoiled your nativity, I'm really sorry, because that, I'm not, I don't think many of those things matter very much. But I do think it's interesting that because of the traditional telling, we filled this story with all kinds of things that it probably doesn't mean. And that's a bunch of things the story doesn't mean. But what it does mean is something far more wonderful than some of the things we typically tell it to mean around this time of year. What happens is, of course, they, they have a sense of one, they see a wonder, a wonder in the sky, an unusual phenomenon. That's wonder in the first sense we mentioned, right? A wonder, a startling, unusual, amazing, impressive thing. And that wonder prompts them to leave Persia or wherever it is and travel for a thousand miles. Having done that, they wonder, in sense two, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Right? They, they feel like they start with the wonder. We've seen his star, and then they wonder, we would like to find out where this is, where this person is. And when they find an answer to that question, and that means going via Herod, via the scribes, via the scriptures, and then all the way back, they are then encouraged to go and search diligently for him, which they do. And that sense of wondering, searching, inquiring, leads them to wonder sense three, which is to praise and adoration of Jesus, the child. Wonder in sense three. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Right? Their wonder started with, wow. And then it went to, what, why, where, when? But ultimately, it ends in worship. And in that sense, their journey from seeing something amazing or bizarre to asking good probing questions and seeking answers until it takes them to a place of worship is exactly the journey that really this period of the year invites us to go on with them, that we also might 
see a wonder, something surprising or startling. The Christmas story itself is full in that sense of wonders, which might then make us wonder, which might then lead us to see that Jesus is wonderful and to worship him. And the word worship is used three times in this passage just to make sure we get the message. Ultimately, this is not simply a story about doing something impressive or asking some good questions. It's about going through those stages that we might worship Christ the King, Jesus. And the implication of that is kind of extraordinary when you stand back from it in the light of the whole of the Bible because it means that the very first people who ever worshipped Jesus were Gentiles, people who were not Jewish. Now, most of the biblical story is about the Jews. And the early church, most of the early, almost the whole early church was Jewish for the first few years. And so you've got a very strong Jewish flavor to the scriptures. And yet the first people to worship Jesus ever in any nation were Gentiles. And actually not just Gentiles, but as we'll see, Persian astrologers by all likelihood, people who are not only not Jews, but they're not even close they live miles away and worship other deities, probably, and read the stars. These guys are not at all the people you would expect to be there, the first to worship Jesus. So in, at this point in the story, we've met a number of people who have trusted in God and believed what God says about the person of Jesus. So Mary, who is a Jew, she believes that Jesus is going to be the Messiah. And she responds to that message with remarkable faith and obedience. But at this point, she does not worship him. She does later, but she doesn't early, or at least we're not told that she does. Nowhere in the story does it say, and Mary worshipped her son. It's been very difficult training a child and worshipping them at the same time. She did, at this point in the story, that's not what happens. We have Joseph. We met him as well. He is a Jew. And he is a righteous man who does everything that God requires of him, but he doesn't worship Jesus, at least as far as we know. The shepherds are all Jews, and they see him on the night that he's born. And they hear this wonderful angelic announcement, good news of great joy for all people. But they didn't worship him. Simeon and Anna are both Jews. They, in the temple, as well, probably you meet them if you read on in the Christmas story in Luke's gospel, and they are testifying and witnessing to the fact that this is the light of the world, the light to light the nations. And they testify that God's, God has kept his promises to Israel in sending Jesus. So they are raving about the goodness of God in sending this child, but even they don't worship him. The first people to worship Jesus, ever, at least as far as we know from the four Gospels, are Gentile astrologers who are probably experts in the occult. I find that staggering. And Matthew, who is the most Jewish of all the gospel writers, really, a Jewish man writing a gospel for Jewish people, filled with references, if you read the whole thing, to Jewish scriptures, the Jewish law, Jewish prophets. Matthew nevertheless tells us, Gentiles worshipped him first. People like you and me, in that sense. People on the fringes of Judaism. People who had no, no right to be there, in a sense. But who have nevertheless been drawn by wonder to wonder, and then encounter Jesus as wonderful. And these people are just not the kinds of people you would expect to worship Israel's king. They're from another country. They're from another religion, almost certainly. Like no one else in the world at this point is monotheistic in the sense no one else believes in one God at this point in history. Lots of people do now, but they didn't then. 
These guys probably worship many gods. That's the likelihood. They believe in many gods. As I say, they're stargazers. They may well be dream interpreters, occult experts. They have another religion. They have another culture. They are out there. They are other. They are distant. They are not the people who should be allowed to be here, being the first ever people to worship Jesus. It is as if the first people to worship Jesus were Osama bin Laden and Kim Jong-un and Richard Dawkins. It's as if the three of them came with their gifts. Imagine it. You know, or take other examples if you like, but people who you would never ever put there. People from people whose culture put them miles and miles away. They are bear in mind at this point in history no one knows how big the world is. So these guys are on the other side of the world from the perspective of the Jewish people. And they are worshipping other gods. They they are nowhere near the kinds of people who should be there. But you just imagine Richard Dawkins and Osama bin Laden and Kim Jong-un bringing tribute to Jesus and laying it down in front of them and saying, we, we have seen something that has prompted us to come and lay down our gods and to bring tribute that costs us a great deal in order to serve and worship him. Meanwhile, the people who you would expect to worship Israel's king, the scribes who knew the scriptures, the priests, they are pandering to the big man in charge who is carefully scheming to have Jesus killed. And that's frightening. Because the people who ought to, be, ought to recognize who this is are busy, we would, say, we would sense, they're, sort of, they're not speaking truth to power, are they? These guys, they say, well, yes, of course, Herod. Yeah, we'll go and find out. The scriptures say, O king, that it'll be in Bethlehem, so I'd get your men there right away if I were you. That's the gist of this story, that the people with all the religious knowledge, the people who should know better, are pandering to power. And meanwhile, the people who are thousands of miles away from another background altogether get to come and worship him. It's a common theme in the Bible. John, in his introduction, speaks of it. He said, he, Jesus, he came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. It's like the people who should have accepted Jesus didn't. And the people who shouldn't have accepted Jesus did. And we find that acted out in the very first group of people who ever worshipped him. It's as if Jesus was born today and Christian pastors and theologians, people like me, instead of rushing to worship him, were so preoccupied with our power and our position that we didn't even notice he'd been born. And meanwhile, the first people who actually did worship him for who he was were Islamic fundamentalists or tribal witch doctors who divined his coming from ancestral bones or people at the local New Age pagan festival who had a dream of him and decided to come and see what all the dream meant. Now there is a warning there. There's a warning there for people like me, people who now might be on the inside, people, yeah, okay, I read the Bible, I teach the Bible. There's a warning for people like me saying, does it, worry, does it challenge you at all? that the people who really should have known said, oh, no, 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 we don't want to. We're still protecting our power. And the people who came from the other side of the world, worshipping other kinds of gods, got welcomed to come and worship Jesus at his house. There's a warning for me. And there's certainly a warning for those who, like Herod, if you like, are those with serious power in worldly terms. Those people do not come off well in this story. Yet there, at the same time as that warning, there is a glorious encouragement for every Gentile foreigner, outsider, pagan, wanderer, migrant, vagabond, that Jesus calls forth wonder and worship from people just like you. 
People just, if you are like that, you identify with that, say, I'm a, I'm a migrant, I'm an outsider, I'm a stranger, I'm someone who comes from a background that doesn't normally get accepted. This story tells me people like you are the people who came to wonder and worship at Jesus first, while all the religious people were doing their own thing. And that can be hugely encouraging. Everyone, everyone is invited. Gentiles got there first. And the Magi, or the whatever we call them, the wise men, the kings, the, the Magi are most famous for the Christmas presents they pack. That's what most people know about them. You know, verse 11, then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Each gift is powerfully symbolic, actually, in its context. Right? So I've already accidentally sort of trashed the song We Three Kings of Orient Are. Bearing gifts we treasure for field and fountain or a mountain following yonder star. I've sort of said, well, they're probably not three, probably not kings. They weren't really following the star in a sense, so that's not really a great opening line of a song. And I don't think it is. But when you go on in that song, and I never thought I'd do this, but I'm going to put up some of the words. But when you go on in that song, you realize whoever wrote this has got the symbolism of these gifts really well. Okay, so the second verse of that song, you may know it if you had to do this at school, that gold is the symbol of kingship. It's the gift you bring to anoint, and literally crowns in that sense are made out of gold. And of course, the, you would know that the Magi would bring gold because they have, when they saw the star, they said, he's going to be born king of the Jews. So these guys know this is a king, and they bring gold in response. And the, and the song says, Born a king on Bethlehem Plain, gold I bring to crown him again. King forever, ceasing never over us all to reign. And because it's in a Christmas carol, you might miss the power of that, but that, that is a group of pagan astrologers acclaiming Israel's king as king of the world, over us all to reign forever. And that is what the Christmas story is about. So they bring gold as if to say this is going to, this individual is going to rule the nations, and yes, he's very small now, we don't know. Is he a few months old? Is he even a couple of years old? No, we're not quite sure. But we are going to come and adore him with gold, as if to say, this little boy, Jewish that he is, in the backwater, backwaters of the empire, though he is, he is going to be king of the world. And so we're going to give him gold to acclaim him as king, even though right now he's just a little boy. And he's a little boy born to a nobody couple that no one cares about. Gold is the symbol of kingship. Then there's frankincense. Now, frankincense is a very common word in the Bible. When you read through it, you'll find actually frankincense, or just sometimes shorter, incense, appears many times in Scripture. And usually it's in the context of offerings and sacrifices being made to God, or of prayer. That's usually what that word connects with. If you read the stories, you often find it in the sacrificial code, in the law, that they would bring offerings with frankincense. And it's a way of, if you like, accompanying an offering up to God. And then in the New Testament, incense often refers to prayer. So you have the prayers of the saints rise up towards God like incense. That's a common theme. In that sense, as they bring frankincense, they are not only bringing gold to say this is a king, but frankincense probably represents something of the fact that we are going to pray to you and offer ourselves to you. That's what whether the Magi knew that or not, actually, that's what that word symbolizes in the rest of the Bible. It sort of carries weight. It's not just, oh, well, they thought, oh, I don't know what to get him. Like, have you got any idea? Oh, no. Secret Santa this year, I ran out of ideas. Oh, don't worry, we'll get them a bit of this and a bit of that, and I'm sure that'll be fine. He's a baby. What does he care? That's not what they do. That these gifts 
have symbolic weight in Scripture, and probably Matthew wants us to know there's a kingdom here, but there's also a prayerfulness here. And that, again, is what gets picked up in the, second, in the third verse of that famous song. Frankincense to offer have I. Incense owns a deity nigh. Prayer and praising, all men raising, worshipping God most high. So the guy who wrote the song in the 19th century is seeing the themes of these gifts and pointing us to what they mean. And then there's myrrh. Now myrrh is probably the least common of the three. It's the hardest to spell by some way when you try and get a kit. You know, it's very difficult, I remember. But myrrh is a perfume, um, and it only appears three times in the Gospels. One of them's here, and the other two occasions that this word appears in the Gospels are connected to the crucifixion of Jesus. Right? So as Jesus is dying, we're told that they offer him wine mixed with myrrh, and he wouldn't drink it. In that sense, it seems that myrrh is designed to sort of dull him from being able to experience the excruciating agony of what he's going through. That's one of the other mentions. And then the other one is that when they bury him, actually after he's died, they put him in a tomb, and myrrh is one of the spices they use to perfume the body, which is the way Jewish people in those days buried him, buried people. In other words, you have three mentions of myrrh in the Gospels, and the other two are explicitly connected with his crucifixion and his death. So again, I think the Christmas carol gets the symbolism right. Myrrh is mine. Its bitter perfume breathes a life of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. If you put all of that together, you have a very rich picture of who Jesus is and what he will do, don't you? You have the idea, gold, he's going to be a king. Frankincense, he will receive prayer and offerings as the divine one. Myrrh, he's going to die and be buried. You have, in that sense, got a pretty thorough theology of the person of Jesus in the simple gifts that are brought by these guys whose names we don't even know. And that's why the last verse of that song brings it all together. Glorious now, behold him arise, king and God and sacrifice. That's a beautiful summary of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. King and God and sacrifice. Earth sings hallelujah, hallelujah, the earth replies. And that's why the chorus talks about the star of wonder. That's what's wonderful about the star and the one to whom the star leads them effectively. Because here are the most unexpected people to appear anywhere in the gospel story. And from a thousand plus miles away, Gentile astrologers or magicians and they are drawn to wonder, drawn by the wonder of a sign in the stars, to wonder how on earth can we find Israel's king, and thereby to hail him as wonderful, to worship him, and to hail him as king and God and sacrifice by the gift that they bring him. Having said all that, I think Matthew mentions the gifts for a slightly different reason. And I think we can see that symbolism in there, and I think in the in the sovereignty of God, the way God has lined up these gifts, I think there is beautiful symbolism to each of them. But I think Matthew has told us about it for an additional reason, because Matthew knows that the visit of these men, these magi, fulfills one of Israel's most cherished promises that the glory of the Lord is now beginning to rise upon God's people, God's people Israel. This is what it says in Isaiah chapter 60 and verses 1 to 6. Arise, Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. 
and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all round and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. That's the promise of the prophet Isaiah 700 years before the story we read about the visit of the Magi. And Matthew tells us, I think, about these gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh because he wants us to see this is about that. This moment here, as these gifts are brought to this child in a house in Bethlehem to nobody parents, this is the fulfillment of what the prophet always said would happen and that we have been dreaming for as a nation for seven centuries. That is that the light of God is now rising. Dawn is beginning to break. Morning has come and the glory of the Lord is going to arise upon his entire nation and shine on the world and people from all the nations of the earth will gather together and see the one whom God has raised up strangers from foreign lands the text says will ride on camels and bring gifts to you kings will come to the brightness of your rising that by the way is probably why we have them we three kings and have them rising on camels because this prophetic picture talks about kings and talks about camels and that's probably where it comes from it says, the abundance of the sea and the wealth of the nations shall be brought to you in tributes. It says, the nations of the world will gather in worship. Isaiah says, your hearts will thrill and exult as the world sees the Lord's glory. And they will bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Arise, shine, your light has come. The magi, you see, represent wonder. They see an astonishing phenomenon in the sky, and they go, wow. And then they wonder, they ask, they search, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They probe, they test, they inquire, they search diligently. And as a result of that, they finally find the one to whom they bring gifts and their riches and their worship, the newborn king, whose name is Jesus the Christ. They are the first people in history, to worship King Jesus. But they're not the last. They're not from round here, these guys. They're not from round here. They're the, they're the strangers. They're the outsiders. But they will not be the last people from far-flung lands to come and worship Israel's king and say, this guy, as unexpected as it might sound, is the king of the world, and he's worthy of all of the tribute and wealth that I could ever bring. They're not going to be the last people to make that statement. In the last 20 centuries, they have been joined by multiple billions of others from far-flung lands who have followed in their footsteps, or if you like, in the footprints of their camels in the desert sands in Arabia. And they and we have come to the shining lights of Israel's king, and we have wondered at what we have found. We have marveled, and we have hailed him as our king and our God and our sacrifice. Let's pray. 
Father, we are so thankful for the gift of Jesus to us. Lord, any number of gifts that we might bring will never compete. No, no, we wouldn't even try. Never compete. It's not like you give us the gift of Jesus and in exchange we give you gold, frankincense, myrrh, or whatever it might be. You, your gift to us is so much larger. It dwarfs anything we could bring to you. But we are so thankful for giving us a gift and giving us the best gift there has ever been, the King of the world the God of Israel in person, and the sacrifice who will die, suffer, be buried, and then rise again to destroy our enemies and forgive us our sins. We are so thankful for Jesus, and this Christmas, Lord, would you help us to wonder at him, and we pray this in his name. Amen.